I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. I want to talk about... I have not even mentioned this to you, Mike. Solo. Oh, a Star Wars story? (laughs) Yes, by Disney. Uh, Did you see Solo? I did. Patrick, did you see Solo? That's the one with Childish Gambino, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. I haven't seen it yet. All right. So, uh, how much do you care about how how much we sort of rip it apart? Oh, yeah. Go to to, to town. Okay. Uh, I'll just la, 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 la. I'm going to say this. I didn't hate it. Uh, I might have might be a little more negative than you. I, I, not despising it, I feel like Solo is possibly the blueprint for a lot of other sort of standalone Star Wars films are going to be. And you know what? Alone. And you know what? I feel like it. Kind of my take is that it's like the Wilhelm scream. Solo is kind of like the Wilhelm scream of Star Wars movies, and it's because it's. The one thing that uh, you're used to, and when you hear it, you get that rush of just being like, I know what that is. And but this for- is when the rock star says the name of your town. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, if you're someone like me who, I don't know, I, when I want to go into a movie, I want to lose myself and I want to lose the awareness that I am watching a movie. And when I hear the Wilhelm scream, I'm automatically ripped out of that suspension of disbelief. And I know, oh, there's some hack who's putting this on the screen or putting this through the speakers. And I, again, have to be reminded of the fact that I'm being callously manipulated by, you know, hack uh, committee filmmaking. And that was every five minutes for Solo. Okay, for... I know we're both of us are not fans of Rogue One. Um, No. Because I think that, that my beef with Rogue One is largely that they detracted from developing these characters in their story because they wanted a grab bag of nostalgia bait to be sort of thrown in there. Um, and my beef with it is it was nostalgia that wasn't directly connected to these characters. Like, so you see X-Wing pilots and the walrus guy and his ugly friend from the cantina or that quick cameo from the droids. None of that stuff has anything in common with these characters. It's all pulling away from them to show a thing that you recognize, like the Darth Vader cameo. And the fact that the movie goes on for like five minutes after the lead characters all die. <laughs> and it's just strange. And that, the thing with Solo, though, is it's full of a lot of the same kind of Easter egg stuff. But at least it's Easter egg stuff about Han Solo. Okay. You know, it's like... I mean, which is what you know you're going to get when yeah. you go to a solo movie. It, so in that in that respect, you didn't, you're didn't you not expecting anything else. Well, yeah, I, right? I went into it expecting the sort of nostalgia porn. My beef with it, though, is that they made all of these, these, st- uh, these side comments. Basically, what they did is they... It's like a bingo card of a movie. It took every side comment that Han Solo had ever made about his past, anything he'd ever alluded to... And crammed it all into one episode of his life. That when you hear all those things in the original trilogy, you think that these are probably all things that he's done over years of adventures. 
that meeting Chewie is going to be on a different adventure than the t- the time he met Lando. It's going to be a different adventure than the time he won the Falcon. It'll be on a different adventure than the time he did the Kessel Run. On a different adventure than the time he got this signature blaster. But it seems a little too neat to have all of that stuff happen in the exact same adventure. And that's where it kind of stretches it for me. Um, the parts where I think it really works, maybe it's because they spent how much time with leaks coming out that they had to teach the guy playing Han to act. Which is a seriously fucking deplorable way to throw somebody under the bus. It really is. You're an actor. You are a successful actor. You've been in great movies, uh, worked for great directors like... Like the Coens. Yeah, like the Coen brothers. He was great in Hail Caesar. Francis Ford Coppola. And uh, they, they, they leak basically to sort of project deflect excuse me troubles from the production they say oh this guy's because he's he's fucking terrible you know he's not a good enough actor we have to send him back to school that's that's so shitty it is a shitty thing to do but at the same time fuck you i had no problems with him in this movie i like the fact that he's not just doing a harrison ford impression that he's drawing something of that character's essence and doing his own thing with it there's kind of that laid back smarmy smuggler guy thing to it. I thought he had great chemistry with Chewie in the movie. Um, yeah, that was the one part of the movie that I thought was the strongest. Actually. I I think that is the that's the one thing you can't afford to get right wrong. You know, if you screw up the the friendship of Han and Chewie, then the movie's fucked. You have to believe that if nothing else. Um, I love Donald Glover as Lando. Land. It doesn't hurt that Lando's my favorite Star Wars character, but. There's a lot of things that they do right in the movie. It's the fact that it it does feel like the bingo card of of Han's life, where aren't you just taking away moments you could put in a bunch of different solo movies? That if if this movie was successful, you could put those all there. So it's like, okay, here's how we got the Falcon. Here's how we did this. Here's how we did that. I don't want to see the origin story of you know, all of these different things. I don't need to know why his last name is Solo. I don't need to know any of that stuff. Yeah. I just want to see Han Solo being Han Solo outside of the orbit of the Rebel Alliance. That I want to see him just existing in the scumbag world of being a smuggler who's moving illegal goods under the the watchful eye of an oppressive regime. That he's working for shitty people, doing shitty things, trying to survive knowing that deep down he kind of has a heart of gold. I just want to see adventures in that world because we really don't see a lot of it. There's him trying to bullshit his way out of, of dealing with Jabba after he gets woken out of the Carbonite. And there's that scene in The Force Awakens where those people show up wanting their money. I kind of want more of that world. World, and I think we got a lot more of it, but we don't have it to, it doesn't have to be at any specific point in his timeline. It doesn't have to be origin stories or explanations or Easter eggs. It doesn't have to be any of that stuff. I just want to see Han Solo. Actually, you know what I wanted more than anything? And mm-hmm. I posted about this on, on Facebook. I said, if there was anything that I wanted that would make me super happy about Solo, it would be that this movie was essentially a sci-fi remake of Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> That's all I wanted. That there's be like some imperial like star destroyer captain who is essentially in the role that Jackie Gleason has as Buford T. Justice. <laughs> that you know at the end he's like throws his hat down sort of shit. I want I want that. Do something kind of lighter. Do something kind of funny. Just a random adventure with. Low stakes for the galaxy, but high stakes for Han Solo. Yeah. Uh, there are... We talked 
at length about how our expectation or our wishes for Rogue One were that wouldn't it be awesome if you did an espionage story in the Star Wars universe and just had it had it just had the flavor of the universe and this is sort of some of the parts of what I was disappointed when Rogue One was not able to sort of achieve that when it needed to go all over to recreate sort of thematic elements from the first second and third Star Wars movies this one at least sort of has it there is a little bit of heist movie heist movie sort of trope in here like the double cross and whatever and uh, like that that's there's there's some good stuff there i think in the same way that the the new conan movie with jason momoa makes conan's gets conan's character wrong cuz he's too magnanimous and too generous this movie does exactly the same thing han solo cuz of course they bring have to bring in the rebellion or the proto rebellion as a, as a sort of a plot piece in there is um no you've already had that beat in the first movie where he's not in it for your revolution man he's in it for the money and he suddenly his his heart his uh, hard little heart has has now grown three sizes and turned into a real you know an actual real human being they have that already in this movie so it it cheapens that that arc for his character in the first one like you could I'm I'm glad that they kept the empire on the sort of on the back burner and Me they didn't too. have lightsabers all over the place. They had a lightsaber. I was really hoping they got that so close so to having stupid. a movie with no lightsabers. Also, also really stupid because aren't all holograms blue? Why did we see the color of the lightsaber in the hologram? Well, that was on Paul Bettany's um, oh, he, yeah, hologram he, he thing. He had the HD model. Yeah, he really <laughs> shilled that a little bit more so that he could get a second color stupid. on his hologram transmissions. But but like I, I'm glad that they sort of they sort of rolled back and said, okay, well, most of the universe is just like. People trying to get shit done, or ne'er do wells running a slave, you know, a slave mining colony, or just these criminals who are trying to, you know, eke out an existence for these weird gangs. Which I'm that all that stuff is great because you hear none of that shit in any of the other movies. I kind of love that that's, part. That's that all, that shit's fine. It's just like they immediately have to return to. It's like the Hobbit movies needing to curl around that story so it it flows more into the Lord the, the tone of the Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah. It's like you have to sort of service because it has to exist precisely side by side with it thematically. There's my there's my $10 word for this one is that it has to has to ex- coexist thematically with them and so therefore you kind of have to just reiterate all of Han Solo's beats from other movies and therefore you make the the sort of the character character's growth in the other movies not special i mean if you are since this is a prequel um if a prequel should be done well it should be done where when you end up watching the thing that comes after which is the thing that in production history was done before it flows naturally and i think that with this movie if you watch solo and then you immediately watched the first star wars movie there would be a big glaring gap in the way that you're supposed to view that character at the very beginning when you first meet Han Solo that is utterly obliterated by what Solo the Solo movie did. I think there's things of it that I really do like. I think Paul Bettany was a great villain. Um I love the idea of just like a middle management I mean, he crime was, boss. He was okay, but he was just he, there was he has a two dimensional character. Yeah, but I think that one, this he's is a the, one dimensional character. Well Paul Bettany I think it brings he's a, a one point five dimensional the thing character. I, the thing I like about I don't think I wouldn't go that far. What I would think of, I like about Paul Bettany is the fact that this is a guy who's your buddy until you do something that disappoints him. That this isn't where Jabba is always in threatened mode. There's never a point where you can get buddy buddy with Jabba. Forgetting that stupid special edition scene. <laughs> um, but we've some, already forgotten. It seems like this guy would be the sort of person you could get into a shitty position with. 
that of course you're going to make a deal. He doesn't seem that bad until you have to like drop a shipment to save your own life. And then he's going to fucking kill your family that I kind of like that angle of it that you think, Hey, this isn't so bad. I'll sign on the dotted line with this guy. Uh, but knowing that he has a boss and that his boss has a boss, it's, um, I, I kind of like that angle of it. I like that it's really just this guy trying to steal fuel from the empire so that he can hold it over other people. Um, I like the, I like the idea of stealing unrefined fuel and knowing that it become a bomb and I have to do a crazy run through a dangerous place and there's a ticking time clock on it. I kind of like all that can, stuff. Can I say that, uh, that it was a, a supremely disappointing and infuriating thing that, uh, that what they, how the Kessel run had to, had to be done. Like, I wish they would have never shown the Kessel run. No person, reason, that's my personal need. There's no reason to talk about it. It's, it's like, it's like that episode of DS9 when they are uh, thrown back in time to the original Enterprise and they see the crew of DS9 sees the eight, the Cleons and they say, well, what's the diff- What's the deal there? And Worf says, we don't talk about it. That's all you need. You the, the, that, that It's hilarious. And it's also the sort of thing where it could be like, well, there was a production reason for this. And so what we don't need is we don't need like several character beats and lines of dialogue and whole story arcs to try to patch over this sort of discontinuity. You can just make it something that exists because this thing has been around for a long time. Yeah. I I think this is one thing we can both agree on. Silly. When you're doing a a prequel like character piece on a character from something and saying, I'm going to do a story about them before they walked into that other movie I saw them in. I, I think most people just want to see an adventure with them being the person that they've hinted at because they're hanging around the lead characters and you want to see what they are like outside of that, that Mm. Han Solo is on his best behavior when he's around Luke and Leia. I want to see criminal Han and I want to see him. He shoots first. Yeah. And he does in this movie. Uh, did, did they do a shoots first moment? There's a oh, moment man. where he does bef- and they don't- that was the if they would have had to be the single solitary mention of anything about his character because since since that moment is unspoken by the way. Yeah, it's unspoken. unspoken. They don't put a button on it. I I would be have been happy if that was the one call- nostalgic callback moment that the solo one did which is like, "Oh, of course it makes fucking sense. He's going to shoot first. He's not going to wait for you to stop talking." Yeah. I like that bit a lot. Um, yeah. Also, Woody Harrelson is amazing in everything that he's in. Yeah. So I have a question, just sort of tonally. Um, my my problem with you know going back to the prequels was that they didn't feel like they took place in the Star Wars world to me. If I felt like that, there's the maison scène of of the prequels is just fundamentally different. Um, where did, this takes place, bef- you know, somewhere in the timelines, I guess between, right. It feels like Star Wars. Okay, good. I mean, that's I, I mean, guess that's what I want. I guess it's got. But. I mean, everything about the Empire you recognize. You you know what a stormtrooper looks like. You know what a star destroyer or a Tie fighter looks like. They aren't in it a lot. I think the restraint of not having more of the Empire is my favorite thing in this movie. Um, I do like a lot of the performances, but I think it's kind of I put it in the same category of a lot of Marvel movies, like the mid range Marvel movies. I'm talking like Ant Man, where. It's a movie where I'm going like, you know, there's some performances in that that I really liked. And I really like that casting choice. And I liked seeing that person be that character. But it isn't about that specific movie. It isn't about the story. It's like a collection of a couple cool moments and neat Easter eggs and mostly fan service. But so far, these standalone movies haven't been standalone movies. They've mostly been sort of... 
who is it that said this? I forget. I forget who said. It. I want to give proper credit to this, but essentially that these are Wikipedia articles. Yeah, masquerading as movies that um, they have all of this backstory that people are used to having. Like, well, how did he get his blaster? Well, how did he meet Chewie? And knowing that there's an internet page out there somewhere that would lay it all out for you, and you know. I I don't want that out of it. I guess we were talking about that before. We've said this about Breaking Bad a number of times that the the things about Walter White's past that are always there that are the big defining moments of his life like why did he leave this uh this science corporation that he started and you get a bunch of pieces that paint an idea of what it is but you never actually have the moment where you explain what happened hmm. that you get a f- one flashback before all of that went bad that shows that he's in a relationship with a woman uh, who started the company with him and her friend. And you know, in the present that Walt broke up with her at some point, And now those two are together that Walt left in anger that he burned his bridges and sold his shares for pennies on the dollar just to get away. And he makes a remark to Jesse at some point saying that every week he looks at their stock numbers. So, I mean, this ended badly. And I don't know why, but there's enough pieces that don't explain exactly why it happened. I don't need to see it happen. But there's enough there that you can make a lot of character assumptions about Walter White. And that's what it's there for. It's there to say something about who he is. That he's someone who will burn the world down as an emotional response to him feeling slighted that his ego is a major part of his character and his mm. insecurities. And it played some role in that. And the fact that he still has an ax to grind about that shit. That See, that's how you use background information. I don't need to see it. Show me a piece of their past that happened long before that change and let me draw my own conclusions based on the contrast. Yeah, it's, you know, if you let somebody's mind make those connections themselves, it's a much more rewarding experience. It's, you know... Almost the the monster that you don't see is scarier, right? Like it's the things that you let the audience construct uh, for themselves. You give them the tools that they need to to, to build that. Um, I think when you lock yourself into this sort of paint by numbers, we have to hit or we have to hit all of these buttons. It really limits the type of story that you can create. I do think that they now that they've kind of dialed in the Star Wars world uh, a little bit better. I do just want to see stories that exist in that world. Um, I, I can't help it when I when I do get those little those little nods. I you know some inner childhood nerd in me gets excited, but um, I do think it's better storytelling, as you say, if you can um, su- suggest uh, what happened instead of needing to spell everything out in terms of perfect continuity. Have I ever told you guys what I wanted the explanation to be of why Han and Chewie are with each other? is that I always wanted the scene to play out where somebody, some ne'er-do-well, whether it's Lando or Woody Harrelson's character, somebody just asks Chewie, point blank, why do you hang out with this loser? And then have Chewie explain without subtitles for about 20 seconds what went down, have Han look kind of embarrassed, (laughs) and have Chewie kind of seem impressed by it and have the other person go, oh, wow. <laughs> and never tell you what Chewie said, but have it be something that Han did something amazing in the past that he's kind of embarrassed by. And just leave it at that because you, you've, I think we've kind of learned that the, the Star Wars fandom is kind of a toxic soup. And 
that it seems kind of like what people react to angrily is they have this, maybe this is a Mark Borchard moment where they have this perfect platonic vision of what they want that backstory to be in their head. Cause they've, they've built it up for years with their perfect fan fiction version of the answer to these questions are. And then they get angry at the movie for not doing their version, which is an un, a really unreasonable expectation to have with any work of fiction. Um, but it's better to have those openings when you have fan bases that are that emotionally invested, because just in that moment where Chewie is talking for 20 seconds, it's whatever the person watching it wants it to be. Yeah. That that moment is all about Han's reaction to it. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot more fun. I think leaving spaces to project is really important. Uh, I, the gutter, is, as we would have talked about with uh, Tobiah and Joe on our last panel, right, is the idea of, in a comic book, there is the gutter, right? There is the space between one panel and the next, and that that could be a moment or it could be a millennia. You know that, could, and what happens between the panels is the purview of your imagination as mm. to how it transitions from one. And movies do this with cutting, right? Where they leave out what happens from A to B. Um, but sort of narratively speaking, sometimes you do need a gutter. You know, sometimes you do need time to pass, and you do, do need things to have changed, changed, and not spelled out every. Like, this is the difference between a an like a like a teenager who's writing a story and a professional who's writing a story. Is that the teenager will see, okay, well, I have a story, so I have to write from you know A, B, C, D, and E, and that's how it's done. Whereas a professional will be like, well, I know how the story is going to be. Maybe it would be more interesting if. C comes first and you skip B and you go to A and then you're off to E and F, you know, like these, the idea that not everything needs to follow in a linear sequence. And maybe it can be a little bit more interesting if it's nonlinear. I mean, imagine what if during Solo, a Star Wars story, what if uh, Han and Chewie are already a thing? They know Lando, but what if the greatest pilot in the galaxy doesn't have a ship? And I know they make a ding of it in this movie, but a guy like that has a lot fewer options as a criminal. Which essentially means he kind of just has to be your hired wheelman. He doesn't know what he's going to be flying on any given job. And what if uh, Lando uses him as a wheelman in his schemes all the time? That Lando's the guy that sets this shit up. That he's the guy who knows people. He knows how to talk to people, both people who have uh, fancy jobs and job titles. And he also knows how to go into the seediest bar. He's like, Han could never go into a job interview as part of like a long con and fool anybody, but Lando could. Lando knows how to talk to management and impress them, but he also knows how to talk to somebody like Jabba the Hutt. And so Lando sets shit up and he just needs a, a getaway driver. So he frequently has Han fly the Millennium Falcon. Han is trying to buy this ship from him and has been saving money, but because, you know, how do you figure Han is with money that he's dropping cargo to save his own life or fucking stuff up, or he's already dealing with debt from a couple different places, and it's clear that he's never going to win this ship, but he's trying to get Lando to sell it to him. And that's the ongoing thread throughout the movie. You don't see it resolved. You don't see the card game, but you know that eventually there's going to be a card game, and he is going to win it. So you show the before part and you let everyone figure that part that they just explained in Empire Strikes Back on themselves because it's never going to be as it's never going to be the version that you had in your head from 1980. And maybe this is part of the problem with I think it's a good it's been a good thing for the franchise that Disney took it over. I really I think there's been um, I mean, there are going to be more movies made in the universe. So in that sense, of course. Um, uh, I'd say that the movies that are, that I want to rewatch 
so far have only just been the main storyline. Yeah. Um, that, and that just, I, they've, they've been, they've been sort of on a range between capable to, I think very good. Yeah. Not I, great. I would say great. I would say you, that the last Jedi is a great movie. Hmm. I'd say hmm. that, uh, <laughs> force awakens is a pretty good movie, but I think the last Jedi is the only one that has really strong character arcs for people. It's the only one that seems to go into territory where I literally have no idea what they're going to do next. And I haven't felt that way about any of these movies forever because it feels like everyone, like we mentioned before, is just kind of remaking the thing that they know that we're out of the, we're out of the, 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 the radius of comfort food and that whatever they built, they broke enough of the old toys in that movie that I really don't know what they're going to do next. The idea of, well, we have to kind of give up on parts of the past and recreate a new thing. Let's build something new that will work so we're not going through the same cycle of whoever these characters' kids are having to deal with the broken shit of this generation. Sure, yeah. No, I, I should explain. I just meant more when when the sale first originally happened. I just remember being going, oh, no. Like, <laughs> Disney is going to ruin Star Wars. That is, is maybe the worst thing that could have happened. Um, and I'm, I've been taken aback at, at that they've created things that belong in the Star Wars universe um, the the quality they're, they're not always the movies that I want, but they feel like Star Wars movies to me. No. Um, and and so so credit for that. And, but the problem is that you aren't just making, you're not making a movie just for the fanboys. You're not just making a movie for people who've even seen the original Star Wars or can you know are going to remember all the lines. The movies have to tell a story on their own that is good enough on their own, and at the same time have those tie-ins that people who are lifelong fans are going to appreciate. That's an extremely difficult thing to do. Um, I mean, we, you were just mentioning Breaking Bad. That's our, so our, our go-to prequel that works is Better Call Saul is the, is who's a minor, a side character in it, but he's through a lot of the actual original Breaking Bad story. And it's not a, it's not a question of, well, you know all this about Saul Goodman and now you're seeing those, those beats sort of happen over the course of the series no you really just don't know anything about Saul Goodman except that he's a sort of a scumbag lawyer who represents criminals and who gets tied up in Walter White's story one of the many people who gets tied up in Walter White's story and has his life obliterated so the the prequel gives you a completely different facet into his life because he was another he was literally another person beforehand and he some uh, something or a series of things changed him um, into something else. And the best part about it is, is of course, you know, he's going to survive to be Saul Goodman in his office with, you know, the American flags all over the place or whatever, you no know, giant constitution mural, right? Um, you know that he will, he'll survive there, but, um, it is, it's more interesting when he is a, when he actually has lots of facets to his character as, as Jimmy McGill. And he's got all of these relationships that he can't seem to help exploding. You know, the thing that I kind of love with, with the Jimmy McGill character in better call. Saul. I don't know if you've seen it, Patrick, but, um, strong recommend. It's a, it's a great show. I know. Um, I, 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 so I am actually one season behind on Breaking Bad, so I still have to finish the final season oh, wow. before I can okay. go back. You're savoring it. You're just... So the yeah, thing that I kind of right. love with, with Saul in this is that it's a prequel where you know that he's going to end up being the greatest bad lawyer in Albuquerque, that he's going to be the guy with the late-night commercials, and he's going to be the guy who happily uh, shields drug dealers from justice and helps you launder money and all this stuff that we know. That he, He'll take meth as payment, I mean, there's things about about Saul that are really seedy, 
And what I kind of love in, in Better Call Saul is you see him before he sort of embraced that, that he's sort of at this crossroads, that he's a, a natural con artist, a natural criminal who is trying to be something better. And you know that ultimately his attempt to be this upstanding lawyer who lives up to the, the example of his, his dynamo lawyer brother is going to fail, that he's going to become everything that his brother hates. But his brother's also kind of a prick. And also there's all of this stuff that plays out with him trying to exist in a world that clearly doesn't want him and him trying to overcome it. And you don't know if him falling from grace is a failure on his part or if it's liberation from a job he would have hated. So you don't know if this is a tragedy or uh, a win because the things that he's really good at, the things that he really gets a charge from in Breaking Bad are those moments where people who exist in that world, the respectable lawyers, see him in a room and immediately go into smug mode. <laughs> and then he gets the opportunity to school those people. And when he gets to see the look on their face and the cops' faces, those are the moments that I think this is why he does this job. And like the moment with, with Jesse's parents in the house. That is one of my favorite scenes in Breaking Bad where that other lawyer sees Saul Goodman enter the room and, and you see him just immediately go, oh, this will be good. <laughs> that The guy from TV, the guy from the, the bus bench. And that guy gets humiliated by Saul. And it's great. And it's those little moments that... You can tell that it, it, the money is one thing, the the crime is the other thing. That, but really, what Saul loves is the ability to to use his mouth, as, the way that like Bruce Lee uses nunchucks, and that's the stuff that he really enjoys. And essentially, being able to legally run cons on people, um, and that's the stuff I kind of love in Breaking Bad. Is there's, there's part of him that is good, but it's a part that he struggles against. Um, and I, I love that about the show. I don't know how long it's going to run, but yeah, it's... I hope they end it soon. Actually. I mean, yeah. that's the, really the, the most disappointing thing about, especially about now we're in the era of prestige TV is those things which last too long. Yeah. I think you know? the example of breaking bad could be really strong here. Breaking bad is just five seasons. And I think that's a great run that this can be about what, um, uh, Breaking Bad was you have a character and it's about their transition from one thing into another and how they became this other person. And it's about them fighting things that are inside themselves in the entire story and then sort of embracing them and it being their downfall. And I think that you can do that, but it, it doesn't feel like we're acting out a bunch of, of Breaking Bad Easter eggs. There's cool cameos and stuff like that, the little fan servicey things, but they don't overtake the show. It doesn't feel like there's entire seasons that are a prequel to a moment in Breaking Bad. That the characters are complete, with the exception of like Mike the Cleaner, uh, Gus Fring, and a couple other minor characters, the, the side characters are completely created for the orbit of Jimmy McGill, a.k.a. Saul Goodman. And I love that about the show. Yeah, I, the the only part that sort of treads on the on the your this is too much familiar stuff is sort of Mike, uh, Mike's thing. But there is there is sort of a delight also seeing Mike's descent into um, he's somewhat of a, has, as a retired cop who was somewhat corrupt. I guess you could say that he was he was he was never as cruel or as bad as he seems to be when he's in the in in Breaking Bad. Um, but he slowly gets worn down. 
the life of being in in, the, in this orbit slowly breaks him down, and he's he basically forced by circumstance to join Gus Fring. You know, yeah, because as he inevitably will, you know. And I kind of like that about the show. It it sort of it creates whole new things for characters that really they gave them the background that they needed to be a part of Walter's story, but now they're part of their own story, and it doesn't feel tacked on. It doesn't feel artificial, and it's kind of an amazing achievement as far as prequels go. So. Um, I do want to talk about one thing, an internet rabbit hole that I went down over the past month or so. Um, so there's this Johnny Knoxville movie that just came out, um, in and out of theaters really fast. I did see it. You can skip it mm-hmm. called Action Point. Was that him running a theme park that's full of dangerous rides? Yes. Yes. Uh, the thing that they're not pushing is that that's based on a real place. <laughs> It's a, a heavily dramatized version of a real place. Action Point, that movie, is based in a place that was in New Jersey called Action Park. And Action Park is a fascinating internet rabbit hole to go down because you will find um, articles on things like the History Channel's website. You will find really great video documentaries on uh, YouTube, one by a channel that I really come to enjoy called Defunct Land where they talk about places that have closed down. There's a whole thing on Euro Disney, which is a great like 30-minute documentary they did. But the one they did on Action Point or Action Park in New Jersey is fascinating because this was a theme park that was started in the late 70s by this guy who had a vision of creating a theme park that basically ran on the same rules as Pleasure Island from Pinocchio <laughs> that you should be able to create your own experience that you should decide how fast or how high that ride goes. And that there was this kind of, it's kind of like if, if Ferengi started a theme park with that overarching message of buyer beware, that you are taking your life into your own hands. The minute you walk through those arches, um, it was a water park, but it also had a number of things like the Alpine Slide. The Alpine Slide was essentially like when you go on a um, a bobsled without the snow. So it's this fiberglass and concrete tube that you go down and essentially, if you you know that thing that you you put a mop bucket on and you can roll it around as a janitor. Yeah. Now rip off the bucket and just leave that small platform with the wheels. Now, add a brake on it that may or may not work. <laughs> Probably just makes you spin. <laughs> yeah. So now you need to go down that fiberglass tube sitting on that thing. Now, the thing with it is that they don't time it to make sure that you've made it all the way to the bottom before sending the next person down. <laughs> so if you're unlucky enough to get uh, one of the carts with a brake that's stuck on, you will get crashed into from behind by somebody whose brake is stuck off. <laughs> Man, lawyers ruin everything, don't they? It's oh, all, think of the fun we could be yeah. having right now. They were there. People have died on this thing, by the way. There was a there was an employee frequently where there were teenagers that were friends of or of the the owner's kids or his kids themselves. They had a very lax policy on being you know teenagers being able to just walk around the park openly drinking. <laughs> and uh, the the Alpine Slide, by the way, somebody who went there described it as essentially an elaborate device to rip the skin off of your arms, <laughs> disguised as a children's ride. There was the Wave Pool, which uh, a lot of people had nicknamed the Grave Pool. <laughs> Apparently, it went way higher and way deeper 
than uh, most things. It was also fresh water, so you didn't float as easily. Apparently, they had to rescue like 60 people a day from this thing. Uh, six people died. Like I said, they call it the grave pool. Um, it was bonkers. I mean, every, there was a, a loop-de-loop um, water slide. It went straight down, and it did a full loop and then shot you out at the end. The thing with that is you don't frequently get enough speed, so you will go up, hit the roof, and then hit down again, and you would come out of this thing with a bloody nose. And then a lot of these rides would simply just have photographs of kids who got injured on the ride as a deterrent for why you should be careful. And it was full of this shit. I mean, this is like why we have state inspectors. And the thing that I found fascinating about a lot of these documentaries is they talked to a lot of people that went there from the late seventies to like the early nineties when it basically got shut down and sold. And despite the fact that everyone who went there knew it was dangerous as a kid, this is the thing about being a child where you don't seem to have that understanding of, I shouldn't go there. Your own mortality. Your own mortality. Yeah. You, you also have this a sense of this being like a, like a a place where you can prove that you're a man. It's like a, a it, it's like this. It's like one of those things where they send you out into the desert with just like a pocket knife and some peyote, and you come back as a, a full blown member of the tribe or whatever. It's crazy, and people sort of took it as I survived Action Park. I to- mean, totally. So I mean, there's, there's something. Newsflash, safety isn't fun, right? No. <laughs> and there's all kinds of incredibly awesome stuff that you can do if you are willing to risk that you might die doing it. And I, I thought for that reason, Johnny Knoxville sounded like a perfect casting for, yeah. for, for that. Actually, the only time I heard of it was I saw his uh, episode on Hot Wings. Uh, and, you know, he did talk, I don't think he ever went to Action Park, but he, you know, he did talk about how Maybe it's a terrible idea, but there is something kind of awesome and and sort of American in a sense that we don't allow anymore uh, to just sort of put people in the situation where they can be kind of wild and there are not the rules that maybe there ought to be. The kids are essentially thrown out and say, hey, kids, have fun. We won't supervise you. You know, that just reminds me... uh uh, I'm so, sort of utterly fascinated by speaking of rabbit holes by wingsuit uh, divers, flyers. I don't know, fallers. They're really just falling. So if you listeners don't know what this is, essentially it's kind of like akin to falling out of a plane with a parachute, except instead of you have a parachute, but you have this suit that kind of makes you Batman in real life, like uh, like a flying squirrel. Almost. Yeah, like a, yeah, you, you're you're sort of connected. Your arms and your legs are connected, and they hold their arms out to the side. And they really can um, sort of maneuver around uh, like a bit like an airplane by sort of moving their body, uh, twisting their body. Um, So what they do is they, you know, they go in places like Switzerland where there are these huge mountain ranges where there's a giant elevation drop. But they have these these long slopes where they can sort of careen down through valleys and then end up over, say, a body of water and then pull a parachute. And it's like it's it, these people are really actually flying. They're human beings that do appear to actually be flying without any power whatsoever. Um, but the thing that you notice is you watch a, the compilation videos of these, and they sort of will have the name of the they'll have the name of the person who's who's doing it. And then by and large, I think the last one I watched there was no more than six. RIPs with their the dates of birth and oh. death dates, and you're like, well, of course it makes sense. These people are going out and doing something that's probably the most exhilarating thing a human being could ever do, 
and most of them are not good. most of them die. So if, I, you're not, if you're not quitting, most of them are going to die. I do have a correction though. Uh, to, to quote Buzz Lightyear, it's not flying; it's falling, <laughs> falling with style. Yeah, that is what it is. It's true. Uh, but it's uh, you know it's another thing that's it is amazing. You you do feel a sense when you're watching it where you're just like I'm probably never going to feel a, maybe in the way that a test pilot does or an astronaut does or something like I'm never going to feel this way because I'm never going to do something so dangerous as to there's a good likelihood of dying. You but know? there's also, you know, the Chuck Yeagers of the world are also extremely highly trained. I mean, they, they spend a lot of time in simulators that would make a regular person explode into a pile of vomit. Uh, they spend years in that thing before they go up in something that hasn't been tested yet. They fly all sorts of, you know, well-tested things before they they get into the thing that might fall apart. And what what's kind of crazy about a thing like an action park is that you're essentially going, you're on your own, kids. Um, good luck. We know there's a lot of bloody noses here. There's a lot of people that you're going to get scraped up. There's going to be some concussions, maybe a drowning or two. Um, <laughs> and, you know, hey, you know, it, it's still it was a place that you could sort of brag about having gone. You could be a 15 year old kid walking around with a beer and nobody would stop you. But it was still a park, so parents wouldn't give any second thoughts. Oh, you're going to do a water park. It'll be fun. And what would you do with a thing like that when you're 15? You will try to impress other 15-year-olds. And occasionally people died. It's, it That's, is shocking that, that place lasted decades. This sounds a lot like I'm trying to think of other places with such notoriety in terms of their the intricacy for their construction, but also their propensity for death. And the only thing I can come up with is uh, legendary... 19th century serial killer H.H. H. Holmes's murder house. <laughs> That's the only yeah. other one where I could be like, hmm, they, someone put a lot of time into making this thing that ended up in a lot of people dying. Mixed Yelp reviews on that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, if Yelp had existed for H.H. H. Holmes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little bit like, uh, you see the BoJack Horseman episode where he builds Disneyland? Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. Oh, so Todd, it's, it's not a great episode. I actually really like BoJack Horseman, but it's uh, Todd builds... Horse, uh, Todd asks Bojack to go to Disneyland, and Bojack says there is no Disneyland. It's something that parents make up to like make their kids be good. <laughs> so Todd says, "Well, why isn't there a Disneyland?" So he builds his own in, his own Disneyland park with like a tire fire and <laughs> you know just rickety wooden rides, and the whole thing is just a giant death trap. So I actually it doesn't this, it doesn't last decades. Oh, um, but spo- I'm going to draw. I'm going to bring up a picture that the people who are listening to this cannot look at. This is the actual loop de loop water slide. <laughs> that looks awful. <laughs> this is this is something you really have to look up, folks. W- what's the, what's the G force on that? Do you <laughs> yeah. think? Um, I don't know. It's enough to definitely break the skin. It's <laughs> it's a very tight loop that you're going to be hitting the sides on that thing. It's. It's, it, 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 it kind of feels like when the people constructed those rides, they were also under the influence. Yeah, it's, or at least conceived of them under the influence. Also, apparently, op, the operators were absolutely <laughs> stoned and drunk to the degree that operators were there. Yeah. Oh, so and got, they were usually other teenagers. I, I've got a question about this. Are carnies? I know there's a reputation for uh, the polite word would be ride operators, but are carnies intoxicated at their jobs or not? Or do you, you just have the perception that they would be the people that would it would be acceptable? to be drunk and high while working at a carnival. By and large, do you think that carnies are drunk and high while they're working? Well, do we really want to stereotype carnies here today? <laughs> I, 
I, I th- there Listen, is... you choose your job and the stereotypes come along with it. If you are, choose to be a cop, then you also choose to be a, uh, stereotyped as a racist pig. If you choose to be a seamstress, then you're stereotyped as being a prostitute. This just happens. So uh, the loop-de-loop ride, they called it the cannonball loop. That's the one that would shoot you into the water. This is from directly from the History Channel website. It said, but the most infamous of the rides at the Action Park was the cannonball loop. An enclosed water slide with a complete vertical loop. According to one urban legend, when park owners sent a dummy doll on a test run of the ride, it came back with no head. (laughs) Gene Mulvihill, that's the owner, offered his employees $100 to test out new rides, including the cannonball loop. And despite employees winding up with bloody noses and bruises, he opened the ride. I I feel like maybe whiplash is the best possible outcome that you get from, from some of these things. Uh, I, there really there are tiers of uh, theme park and uh, of carnival, and if if you saw a carnival and we're trying to decide whether to say bring your child to it, there's a there's a visual inspection that you you kind of how shady is this is this here, uh, and where is it set up? You know if they're if it's within city limits, probably better permitting than if it's mm. uh, you know outside of a small town somewhere. Uh, the the history of of that stuff it gets pretty dark. I mean it gets there's some. That that's action point is maybe one of the longer lasting uh, death trap amusement parks, but it's certainly not the only example. But the the fact that we would go on a roller coaster that's a part of a traveling carnival, rather than a roller coaster that's permanently in one place, and is you probably going to be built a lot more sturdily so that it because it's not expected to travel. Hmm. You're not going to the, the bolts aren't going to be shaken loose by having driven down, you know, 1500 yeah. miles. When to you get go to like Six Flags and you get on Batman the Ride, that thing is so sturdy and big, clearly that's a roller coaster that it would be completely impractical to pick that up and move it to another location. But the ones that do, the ones that occasionally come to your town and they take it completely apart, build it in a parking lot across the state, people ride on that thing. That the fact that we trusted that ever, that is really disconcerting. That's the sort of stuff that I mean the the level of you putting your life into the hands of complete strangers for essentially a couple bucks. That's insane <laughs> when you really think about it. Well, so going back in history, you really have to remember how bored people were. It's uh. Th- we we live in an age now where if going to a carnival is up against at the very least staying home and watching Netflix, uh, right. that the the, alter, the alternatives for safe entertainment are basically infinite, and uh, no matter where you live, as long as you have an internet connection. Whereas if you if you live in a small town fifty years ago, that anything that comes through, any novelty of any kind, you're gonna check it out. Uh, you know, you might there might be some risk assessment. But the risk reward ratio is very different than how yeah. it looks today because if you don't if you don't go on this carnival, when is there going to be another carnival and there's nothing else to do? And when it disappears, who are you going to sue? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the there's got to be there's got to be a, a if there hasn't been. I, I'd like to be an anthropology of boredom because I was just when I was thinking about that. There's this. It would be like a historical X Files, I guess. So in the Europe, I think it was in the 17th century or maybe it was the 16th century. Um, there was these pockets that happened 30 or 40 years apart of what they call dancing sickness do you guys know about this oh yeah yeah so dancing sickness is a form of it's a it's an unexplained form of mass hysteria and it starts when there's a music festival in a small village and it comes what happens is is that people start dancing and they can't stop and it and it spreads to 
if not the entire town, most of the entire town. And it's completely unexplained why this ended up happening. People dancing until they're so exhausted that they die. Um, and one of the explanations of so this is just like, if your life is so boring, yeah. the most important thing that, you know, the 17th century equivalent of kiss comes to town, you dance yourself to death because that's how boring life is. Well, I mean, are, are we pathologizing just a really good party? Yeah. But like, maybe people say that they can't, maybe, you know, the, the supervisors, the authorities say, oh, these people, you know, can't stop dancing. I think maybe they just wouldn't stop dancing because let's you know let's have a good time, guys. It's well, I always tell this story. It's because it's, it makes what should be a romantic and adorable uh, life story uh, creepy and and unsettling. Which is the first thing that I ever um, talked about with my now wife is uh, we were in line the salad bar, um, and in the salad bar, you know, they have the little pieces of purple cabbage that are sort of chopped up and in, in with the other with the mixed greens or whatever. And I don't know why that is. This is the uh, awkward uh, um, Andy Kaufman like side to Casey Doran's brain where I was like hey do you know you know the story of the Pied Piper do you know the reason why the kids followed the Pied Piper it's because in the original story you take the caraway seeds out of the rye and fed them to the children which was a psychoactive compound caraway seeds have some sort of psychoactive compound so the kids were all high Maybe that's the whole thing, the story behind the sleeping sicknesses, that people are like, break out the rye bread! Everyone's just like smoking peanut, Spanish peanut shells, and I don't know. It just, you're, you're sort of building a narrative where suddenly John Lithgow's character in Footloose is a folk hero. You've got to shut that shit down. Uh, they, you know, they probably knew the right stuff to eat in the forest uh, to I'm have sure. a good time. Yeah, of course. Hey, if animals get high, then certainly... You know, uh, humans in the golden age of foraging probably knew exactly where to go. Oh, yeah. I think that people figure this stuff out pretty quickly. <laughs> Either, if they, okay, first step, nobody died after we ate that. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, how do you think else we figured out what, what alcohol was? This I don't is- know. The, the, I don't know if either, did you guys see the Ken Burns documentary on Prohibition? No. So the first... The, it's it's a great documentary. The watching the first one is actually amazing for lots of reasons. And the thing that is sh- sh- just shocking is that Americans in the nineteenth, towards the latter end of the nineteenth century, on average, the amount of alcohol they drank per day would shock you. It's like four their their average their average yearly consumption is something like four times the average American is is, is now like. That's crazed how how drunk America felt that they needed to get to escape their woes. Well, there wasn't always a carnival. <laughs> yeah, there also wasn't always water. I yeah, mean, it's, that's true. Um, Farmers' beer and what have you. But yeah, but pro- the the story of prohibition it makes a little bit more sense when you when you recognize the state of things uh, leading up to it. But yeah, you, you got to find a find a way to have a good time. Yeah, you know, I understand how humans have, through trial and error, figured out what doesn't kill us and what what gives us high. The thing I don't get is the things that you have to treat them a certain way, or they will kill you. But then, if you treat them, then they're really good. You're talking about those people who have pet chimpanzees that have inevitably <laughs> ripped their face off. Uh, or I don't know, like just olives you know are rock hard and inedible until you basically let them rot for a while and then you can you can you can eat them or uh, uh, cashews for example uh M- amanitas muscaria you know amanitas mm. muscaria is the it, it's like the mushroom that you see in like christmas paintings and it's the, the red and white spotted it is actually interestingly not illegal in the united states because it is considered to be a poisonous mushroom mm. uh however if you let it dry uh then it becomes psychoactive 
Hmm. Uh, and so there is, if you know what you're doing, you can you can definitely get high on Amanitis muscaria, uh, even though it's it is a legal mushroom because it's considered. Uh, hmm. So you know, tr- trial and error. You can't make a mushroom illegal. It grows in the ground, or, or a cactus, or, or a, yeah. flashing back to forty years of stoned arguments about why there should be marijuana prohibition. Well, you can't make something God made illegal. Sure you can. <laughs> sure you can. And they do all the time. But um, speaking of something that we we did all enjoy, um, I don't know, Patrick, have you seen the John Krasinski-directed film, A Quiet Place? I have not. I feel so left out this film. Oh, size. so I, I do it's want right. you, you to... You just get to witness and be wowed by it. That's, that's all. So I guess we could direct this at you and, and the listeners, but... It was a great movie. I don't know if it's still playing in any theaters. I suspect it, it is not. But that was my favorite movie theater experience of 2019. Or 2018. Wow. It's, oh, man. It's that good. Time man, traveling, Mike. I got to cut back on my dried mushrooms. <laughs> but uh, on 2018, it really was a great movie. Um, how best to explain it? It's a movie that really knows its theme and zeroes in on it the I mean, idea it, it could easily have been as hokey and bad and incompetent as the happening was yes it's essentially this it's essentially the m night Shyamalan's the happening where um you just create an arbitrary like x in the environment kills you and so our heroes have to try to avoid it but in quiet place it's just that the monsters that eat you will hear you if you make a sound and so it's about people the people who still survive are the people who can build their life around a way to make try to make as little sound as possible in the open air so as not to invite the merciless monster killers to come in. That there's these monsters that are completely blind but have super hearing. So Which it never really explains why they just can't hear your heart beating. Well, if you're standing in the same room with you and they're open up their inner ear, they've got to be like, of course well, they can hear they, the... They hear you. I mean, there's a point where they hear you breathing, but you have to allow something for dramatic right. purposes. Right. So... The the thing that I really love in this movie is it commits itself to this idea of making the audience afraid of any sound. So there's a very minimal score. There is very little sound. There's a lot of ambient noise that you hear. You hear a lot of the sounds that you'd hear if you're just standing in the woods. It takes place in a fairly, fairly rural area, so there's not a lot of people around. And you go into it like a year or two into the apocalypse. That, yeah, it's like 2020 or something. Yeah, that you're yeah. you're in a place where this stuff has already happened. Most people have already sort of died. And the lead family has found a way to sort of coexist, including, um, which must have taken a really long time, this path of, of sand that they walk barefoot in out to town to be able to scavenge and get stuff. So they're... They, because they have a daughter who is deaf, um, they all know how to sign. So they speak exclusively through American Sign Language with a couple words sort of spoken. So when you do hear somebody actually speak, it really feels like an explosion. And anytime you hear somebody drop even like a a small thing, like a key or anything, it sounds so much louder than it would in any other movie, and that we're so used to a lot of these large movies, whether it's Star Wars or a Marvel film or John Wick or any of these movies that have just so many things happening, so many explosions, gunshots, people falling down, people just constantly talking, um, that it infects the audience. And that's the part of it that I found was my favorite movie experience, that 
so much of the movie happens in silence with just those ambient sounds and that you you hear every footstep in the sound that's in the sand that's how much you find yourself paying attention to sounds because you find that you're afraid of them too that the audience itself becomes very self-conscious about the sound that they're making in the movie theater um it's an interesting take i found that it was an interesting take on jump scares so there's one thing that uh, I've been watching a lot more horror movies recently because, as it turns out, some of the more interesting things that are being made in American cin- in world cinema, in American cinema as well, are horror movies. It j- you just have to get inventive when you're a horror movie. But, you know, you I, I watched, I just finished watching Stephen King's It, the new remake and stuff, and even that movie sort of falls prey to the fact that every horror movie has to have a, you know, like a orchestral hit, like a ring, and then like a cut or something that makes the audience go oh, and jump in their their seats. But the fascinating part about uh about the quiet place is any loud sound becomes a jump scare. Yeah. And it doesn't need to have like a, you know, like a violin playing, playing like really fast. It doesn't need There's it. almost none of it where you feel it's be- it's fucking frightening because of the it, the contrast, the dynamics between what happened before and what's going to come after. Because the movie is quiet and everyone is like paying so much attention to sound, everyone themselves is being quiet. So when you see somebody walking towards even a crinkly leaf, you feel yourself go and because everyone's so quiet, you can hear the intake of breath of the people around you. You can hear people tense up. You can hear people... I mean, there's a thickness in the air that you never get with other movies because the other movies usually, whether it's dialogue or sound effects or the the music, usually drown all that out. That it's only the loud you know, cheers or applause or gasps that you hear from your fellow audience members, the things that actually become louder than soundtrack. But because the movie itself is frequently so quiet, you you don't even want to chew your popcorn too loudly. <laughs> and I've never encountered something like this, where I've even seen think pieces about, you know, don't fucking make noise during a quiet place. And it really kind of sells it, because it's it's a really great movie about these people. Apparently, the... I, I have friends who who teach sign language and do interpreter through interpret through sign language, and uh, they said that this was probably the best representation of of that sort of culture and the language that they've seen in any movie. And the fact well, that also there's an element to it that makes it even more interesting, which is the daughter who is deaf can't hear sound, so she only has to search for visual clues to when a sound is happening, and therefore there is danger, which heightens the jeopardy that everyone's feeling. And of course that they, this also has, um, you know, the, we, we talked about the movie. It happens at night where it has something very horrible that happens right before the end of the movie. This has something awful that happens within the first five minutes of the movie. And this movie, it, and it's, 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 it's terrible a horrible tragedy. Yeah. And it's, a, and it heightens the danger. It basically sets the stakes for why everyone has to be so quiet. Yeah. I, I really liked it. I've told Mike on now on two occasions that I was like, I think the people who wrote the script and I'm assuming John Krasinski, the director himself conceived of this story as parents of, uh, that who have small children, especially babies that are sleeping because, Anyone who's had small children knows that there's a for a few, few months sleep is so precious for the first couple of years sleep is so precious that once they're asleep you sort of tiptoe around as if any errant noise will sort of awake the sleeping beast and in this they've just personified the sleeping beast as literal beasts who will kill your family 
It's it's genius, actually. And it's I, very well done. I love how much they hold back. the. You don't really see the monsters very much. There's only the threat of them frequently. Like somebody drops something, like a glass falls, and it makes a sound, and everything tenses up. And it's like 30 seconds before people calm down. Because you're just waiting to see if anyone... Because you don't know if one of those things is near you or not. You really don't know. And the thing I kind of love, given that 99% of the dialogue is subtitled over sign language that those the thing that it kind of plays into the fact that these people are literally not talking to each other is that the tragedy at the beginning is something that hangs over the entire movie and these people have literally not really talked about it so there's parts of it that have sort of festered and the sort of things that are left unsaid that that are kind of hurting all of these people and they cannot talk to each other. They can't express themselves emotionally in the way they could because it makes noise and it puts everyone in danger. And I kind of love that about this movie. And there are little twists and stuff at the end that in so many other movies would feel really trite, but it feels earned in this movie. That they spend a lot of time sort of doing it. Also, it made a nail sticking out yeah. on a step to be the scariest thing. I was going to say, it was the most dramatic use of a nail in a movie ever. Since Home Alone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of great. I, I was I was thrilled with this. I, I want more people to have seen it. Yeah, I wish I'd seen it in the theater. Sounds like a... Oh, God, it's a great experience. It really is. I you mean, can there's... see it in the theater of your mind, mm. Patrick. But yeah, it's it's... I would say... It's a better experience sharing it with another person. Watch it with multiple people and maybe with a really good sound system, which is kind of ironic given how quiet it is. But I think the experience of hearing all those little things like hearing birds in the distance or hearing the wind just I think that it it succeeds at the thing like you mentioned with the happening that uh, the happening kind of fails at but is admirable in its attempt, which is take a thing that is around you all the time and now try to make an audience terrified of that thing. In this case, anything that makes a noise. <laughs> I I loved it. I loved it, and I want more people to see it. Double recommend. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Just go to Action Park. There's no other park like it. When it's hot out, this is a great place to spend the day with your family. So lots of big things for little kids to do. I love Action Park because it's so beautiful. It's like coming to Broadway. It's wonderful. Race like a pro. It's great. These are the most amazing rides in the world. I love it here. There's nothing in the world like